Welcome back, friends. Welcome back. It's time for another episode. This episode is our new monthly book club episode. Our first monthly book club episode. And wow, what a choice we made. Or you made. Um, This was... You made. Yeah, this was my book suggestion. Yep. uh, Based on enjoying the Poppy War books. Yes. And I didn't really look into it any farther than, oh, a magic system based on languages. Cool. That sounds interesting. Okay. So the book in question is Babel or An Arcane History of... It has like the world's longest title. Just a minute. Okay. Babel or The Necessity of Violence, An Arcane History of Oxford Translators Revolution. And it is by R.F. Quang. I think I'm saying that right. Let me just make sure. Quang. By R.F. Kwong. It says Kwong. Kwong. I want to make sure I said that right. So yep. it's important. Language is important. As, as we, we learned. As we learned. So before we get started, hi, I'm Rachel. And I'm Matt. And this is the Strange and Beautiful Book Club. Welcome to the Strange and Beautiful Book Club. I've been like jamming this book out all day, so I'm a little bit. You're pretty hyped up. I'm pretty hyped up. I'm like, in. This is a extremely beautifully smartly written novel, and I feel like that's going to color the way we speak. So we're going <laughs> to use even more SAT words than usual. I can feel it. Um, I wanted to get a couple things out of the way before we start talking about the book because one of the really heavy themes in this novel the theme of this novel really is what happens when you are othered in a white society and what does that mean for who you can be and how you move through the world and how does it color what you can do and your perceptions of the world around you and We are both white people. Like super white. Like I am so white. I should someday, I should really post my, my uh, genetic results. My ancestry results. Yeah. Um, Literally, except for that one ancestor who got a little bit spicy with somebody from the Iberian Peninsula, probably because they came to England. Um, That's it. Like I sprang forth from Europe. So there's a couple of things that we're going to talk about in summary, but I'm not going to offer an opinion on because I think there's a difference between elevating and amplifying voices and inserting myself into a conversation. Does that make sense? Yeah. We don't really have the lived experience. Yeah, I can't. I don't want to speak really to that. add to this discussion? That would feel trite to try yeah. to be like, you know, this one time somebody got mad at me at Walmart. That's not the same thing. So I'm not going to be doing that. But we will talk about it in summary. And I think we can talk about the larger implications of the way this book was received and some of the other things about, like, this is a very romanticized period for a lot of yes. people. The... The British Empire at its height. The the crown. The empire. Victorian England. Victorian England. You know, this is not that far removed from Pride and Prejudice and Bridgerton. And, well, of course, Bridgerton's not an accurate representation, clearly. But this is still the same romanticized period. This is also when slavery was legal in England, just before this book. Like, during the time period that Pride and Prejudice is set, slavery is legal in England. And it's a side of the coin 
we don't see very often. Because who writes history? And who writes the novels that get passed down through history? The colonizers do. That's who do. Yes. Yeah. So um, I think uh, we'll just start with kind of a summary about this book. So this book is an extremely emotionally academic look at an alternate history of um, England in like the 1830s. Yeah, in their empire era. Yeah, the height of the empire. And it really doesn't change a whole lot of the way that the empire functioned and existed, except that you can cut the word industrial off the front of industrial revolution and make it silver revolution. Right. Most of the, instead of saying, our engineers refined and developed, you know, steam technology or whatever yeah. machinery, our translation institute developed silver bar word pairs that made these kinds of machines feasible and efficient. Right. And it's the idea of translation, the fact that a word in one language does not have a one-to-one -one equivalent in another language. It's like the word in Spanish, simpatico, which we often translate as like nice, but it's really more like we are the same, we are one, we're on the same page. There's more to the word simpatico than nice or, um, you know, of a kind. And the idea is that the gap between what we translate the word as and the word in the other language is where the magic lies, the understanding of the difference. Right. As generated by the mind of the person who understands the word in both languages fluently. Yeah. You have to completely understand. And you have to hold both understandings in your head at the same time. Isn't that how the magic system works in Patrick Rothfuss's I was, book? I was going to bring that up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's his first one? Name of the Wind. Name of the Wind. Yes. yes. they have. It's called Sympathy Magic, and it's holding opposite, um, like, fundamental beliefs of reality in your head at the same time allows you to manipulate energy around and yeah. this so this is a little bit more nuanced yeah it's specifically related to language this reminded me a lot of we read the imager portfolio by le modisset jr and this to me felt very similar where i feel like at the end of this book if you gave me a silver bar i could probably figure this out because i got so much information about how this worked it's this book is classified as dark academia dark okay uh yeah. kate mentioned that yeah. as a genre recently yes dark academia and i had never heard the term it's like a dark fantasy novel set in a school setting in this case oxford Gotcha. And our main point of view character is Robin Swift. And this is a spoiler. This whole episode is going to be full of spoilers. So if you haven't read the book yet, this we're is going not, to be. Um, we're going to be spoiling shit. We're violently gonna, discussing violent, <laughs> the details of the story. So stop. Stop. Go read it. You don't want this book spoiled. This is, this is a no, good it's, book. It's good. It's. I really enjoyed the Poppy War yeah. tr trilogy, and I even commented on Instagram. I know. I saw. I had just mentioned that I'm like the only one that uses social media, and that's then like, you went on and made me look bad. You that's like a big fucking deal. <laughs> it's a big fucking deal. <laughs> uh, because she does such a good job of writing characters who stay in character it's, yeah. it's it's very much here's these characters in this world and i just let them go yeah and they are themselves and write it down yeah at no point did i feel like they made a choice simply to advance the plot right never i felt like everything that they made even when i didn't agree with the choice it still felt like a character choice that that character would make right yeah i acted impulsively 
because I was scared and I made a regrettable choice. Yeah. Totally believable. Totally get it. Yep. By the time you get there, you're like, yep, absolutely. I totally understand that. So that our main point of view character is Robin Swift. And the reason I made a mention that this could be a spoiler is I'm a little bummed we never learned his Chinese name. Ditto. And then even by the end of it, or close to the end of it, someone asks him what his name is. Chinese name. Oh, yeah. When he's in back in Canton. Yeah. And somebody, they ask him, and he's like, "Uh, I don't don't really know. He was like, oh, my name is. He kind of forgot how to pronounce it. No, he just goes, my name is, uh, never mind. Yeah. Like, it doesn't doesn't matter. He's lost all attachment to it. Well, I think it's because that's not who he is at that right. time. Not till the very end does he get to be himself. Right. Because Robin is, um, his entire family dies, like, right off the bat from the book. This sets the tone. It's not going to get a whole lot lighter right. from here on <laughs> out. Him lying next to his mother, who has just died of cholera, waiting to die of cholera himself. Yes. He himself is sitting there paralyzed. Yeah. And then on the verge of death. And the white savior, um, Professor Lovell, comes in and saves him, uses a silver bar to save him and bring him back to England to be his ward, not his son. Not absolutely uh, not, not his, his son. Not his son. Nope. His ward. And I think it's an interesting choice that we never, ever, ever get an age stamp for Robin. We never It's within know. a few years. But we, we don't, it's not right. ever a part of it, really, right. what his age is, which I think is really interesting. And he stays with Professor Lovell and he ends up learning Latin and Greek. And what you find out is his real value is his native speaking of Cantonese. Right. So for the whole silver magic, the better the depth of your intuitive grasp of the language uh, determines the power of the magic that you can produce. Yeah. And no matter how much these language professors study and practice their Chinese they're never going to achieve the level of proficiency of someone who grew up with it from birth. And so they're basically like picking kids in foreign countries. Yeah, plucking and then, them out. And then like in Robin's case, literally dropping a nanny in and mailing them books. Yeah, so that he'll speak English. Yes. So yeah. he grows up bilingual. Yeah. Yep. Um, until Professor Lovell shows up. And I th- a really like sinister part of this that just kind of gradually unfolds is that it was just kind of a hobby of Professor Lovell to go to Eastern countries and hmm. bake some babies mm-hmm. and then support them being raised on English, and then at some point, at the right age... Yeah, yeah, go pluck them out. Go pluck them out and put them in the university. Yep. And we found it at the end that there are three or four more. Yeah. That, yeah. that well, Griffin knew about. It's implied, yeah. yeah. There are others. Well, Victoire has, um, reads three or four names from this letter that Griffin wrote yeah. to Robin. Yeah, there yeah. are others. Yeah. Or we are not alone. We are not alone. We are not alone. Yeah, but he Ooh, has, a, and he has like. a, like a he has a family. It's wild. It's a wild. And so that kind of sets one end of the spectrum of how the I guess the British attitude toward non-British people, right? And especially the exploitative motive of what Professor Level is trying to do in, you know, recruiting these kids to come work for the Translation Institute. Right. Yeah. And I mean, you're working with, this is, this was very real. This is not an exaggeration of the way that England viewed the world. I think there's, 
There's a number floating around that um, a country celebrates its independence for the British approximately once every seven days. No, it's like one and a half days. No, it's once every seven once days. Once every seven days? Yeah. And okay. that number is maybe a little exaggerated, but not by much. Not by much. There was a time when the sun never set on the English Empire. British Empire. British Empire. Um in, so we talk about a lot in our other podcasts that the idea of fantasy and sci-fi is it becomes a sandbox where we can confront these ideas. We can confront in a, things in a... In a way that there's a little bit of distance. Yeah. It, there and is, there is make a it palatable. paper thin amount of distance here. Right. The only real difference is the silver technology. But it's just enough of a buffer that she can say all of the quiet parts out loud about this romanticized section of history and how it was really only romanticized for the people who didn't look different. For the, the Lettys of the world. The Lettys of the world. And Letty was an interesting inclusion as well because our four main characters, Victoire is from Haiti, and she's black. And then Rami is Muslim. Which we don't find Calcutta. out she's from Haiti until the very end. I think she mentions it at the very beginning, doesn't mm -mm. she? Because she speaks Creole. Right. She studies Creole. Ah. But in in the epilogue, which is the only chapter that's not from Robin's point of view. No, the any of the interludes are. Rami oh, has that's an interlude. Right. There, has there an are interlude. interludes. Yeah. Okay. So the epilogue um, from Victoire's point of view, she says that she she ended up being raised, like refusing any connection to Haiti. Yeah. And then it wasn't until she joined the Hermes Society that she really admitted to herself that she was Haitian. Yeah. And any time it would come up, she would shut down. Right. In conversation. And yeah, so we have Victoire ostensibly yeah. from France. Yeah, France by way of Haiti. Yep. And she is black. And then Rami is from um, Calcutta, but he's Muslim. And then we have Robin, who is from Canton. Canton. Um, he's Chinese, half Chinese, half professor level. Yeah. <laughs> and then we have um, Letty. Who's just a, they call her the English Rose. She's a white aristocrat from England. Yep. And these are our four main characters. And it gives her a lot to play with. It gives her yes, a lot of. Yes, there's a of, lot of lenses. Yeah, there's a lot of lenses yep. which, with, with which we can believably walk through the world. And they all come from different backgrounds as well. They all have, they're like Rami and um, Robin both had like caretakers they had um people that sponsored them because they knew they were going to go into be babblers to go to right. oxford to take translation because translation rules the world silver rules the world it is an absolutely necessary technology but as they mentioned in the book the the inverse effect of colonization you have to have colonization to get these new languages to create more powerful um, bars to create more powerful match pairs but by colonizing you create homogeneity you end up erasing right the you, things that you make you spread different. the language on both sides and dilute the power of the whole silver bar magic yeah of the match pairs yeah and we hit the evils of colonization there are so many like really <laughs> wow profound lines yes this woman um rf kuang has several degrees from prestigious universities she is a very very intelligent writer but at no point do you feel like she is trying to write you smart you out of the conversation right it feels like she is trying to present it in a beautifully educated way and it's a very it's nice to read 
So I wasn't sure how you were going to receive this book. <laughs> and <laughs> Rachel, like, powered through this book over the last, like, three days. Yeah. And at no point... So I guess part of the dynamic we've developed for the podcast yeah. is that we avoid having conversations about like a podcast topic yeah. outside of the recording right. Save studio. It for the pod. Yeah. And so <laughs> I just keep seeing Rachel like agitated and <laughs> just kind of <laughs> I need to go read this book, whatever. Blah, like I'm struggling to get through this. So I was getting a lot of the same vibes that she's given off from having to read all the books with Kate. Oh, yeah. Some of which are less enjoyable. Yeah. And so I'm like, okay, does she not like this? Okay, that's that's going to generate some content. Uh, But I know I really liked the author's writing style. Yes. And the way she writes characters. And the way the story follows the characters, and there's a lot of there's a lot of you know kind of meanderings in the story that you if you were looking for a plot driven story, you could just straighten them out. Yeah, and blah, it might be a little. Yeah, this would be less... a novella if we were if we were right. only including the plot parts. And yes. so, and and I know there's a lot of like hypothetical discussions between the characters and political overviews and yeah. Rachel generally doesn't like that kind of stuff. The political so, stuff was a little dry. Yeah. It was a little dry. But you know what So we, I'm glad to hear yeah. that you really enjoyed at least some parts of the book. I really liked Robin. I liked yeah. Robin's struggle with himself and with the outside world. And with the way he related to the outside world and the fact that he could have chosen an easier path, but he recognized that his path was never going to be as easy as, say, um, one of his white classmates. And he found himself unwilling to accept that in the end. Right. And he didn't take well to being used, which I relate to. I thought that Robin was an excellent character, not ever the type of character I could see myself as, but he was a realized character in his own right. And by the end, the choice that he makes at the very end is believable. It's not the choice I wanted the book to end with. You must have loved the ending to this book. Uh, Matt loves tragic endings. Yeah, (laughs) <laughs> the world is a tragic place. <laughs> <laughs> so, you love a good tragedy. Uh, I was, I I was almost expecting a little twist at the end. Yeah, because it's we talk about cheap conflict a lot. Yeah, there's, and I guess a more generalized version of that is just cheap plot devices. Yeah. I guess plot devices covers it. Yeah, yeah. And so there's a plot device where you just get to the 11th hour and then the character has, oh, I just had a revelation about how to get out of this. Yeah. And, you know, turns the tragic ending into a... Victory. Victory. Yeah, Blitzkrieg smackdown. And, and when that happens, it's like, ah... Like that's not okay. Like the the trajectory of the story should at least stay mostly the same direction. Right. At no point did I believe the stakes weren't real. Right. Yeah. Um. Often in the books that I read with Kate, even when I we're we're at our lowest, I'm like, Meh. <laughs> we're gonna find our way out of here. There's no way the love interest is gonna die. At no point in her writing was I like, you're going to betray me and make this. You're going to give me an unbelievable out that's going to cheapen this moment. Right. I really there's, there's no happy ending here. No. I mean, not a personally happy ending. Right. 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 There's a, maybe sometimes we have to make choices for ourselves that are tragic 
but will ultimately lead to a larger benefit for other people. Right. It's the good of the many over the good of the one. That's the ending to this book, to this, yeah, to this story, is Robin chooses the many over his own personal right. good. And the only- like even, even if you wanted to say the good of the one, it's just that the one that he was doing this for was not himself. Right. It was Victoire. Yeah. It was yeah. anyone. It was his country. It was the people currently being ground under the thumb- of the British Empire. And I thought, the, I, I highlighted a line at the end and I loved it. It was, they take over the tower and immediately everything starts to fail because they have set up this profit network. They have deliberately yes. made the network fragile. And proprietary. And proprietary so that they can continue to make profits. but the, To exclude other universities, other British universities. Yeah, which means the only thing they have to do... doing the same thing. ...is pluck out the center and everything will fall. And I thought, wow, that's... There's a lot There's a lot of good metaphor things happening here. I mean... Oh, yeah. This book, was, there was a lot of quotable lines in this book, for sure. Um, where I was like, oh... That, that resonates with me deeply. Right. You, you set up this whole thing and then you just like summarize it in one line. Yeah. Or the the amount of for maintenance is arbitrary because we're the only ones that can do it. We set the terms. Right. So we get to decide how much we charge to maintain silver bars. And every time someone says, well, why don't we use that to benefit people? Why don't we use that to make the world better? They're like... Pfft. Where's the money in that? Who gives a shit? We're making so much money right now. Right. And it's, especially with what's happening in the world lately. Yeah. These are totally believable lines of rhetoric that people are like, oh, well, I, that's how you make a profit. Okay, but why are you focused on making a profit? Right. When you're literally increasing the amount of suffering in the world. Yes. Well, why is it my responsibility that my actions have consequences? And we had a lot of good philosophical debates in this where there was not a clear side. Yeah. Like, especially at the end when they're talking about, you know, if we don't go out, if we don't help, Westminster Bridge will fall. Will literally fall. Right. And the only people that will be hurt by that are the poor people. Because the rich can just leave. Right. And in the end, they decide to let it fall. But the discussion we have around it is really interesting. And I thought the line about how this just goes to show you that when you are oppressed, resistance is shown as the moral failure, not right. the oppression. The, the, the damage caused by the oppressed resisting is put on is blamed on yeah the oppressed that are resisting yeah rather than this is the inevitable result right of the way the system was built yeah it's like when we have a protest and everyone arrest we arrest the protesters instead of looking at the thing they are protesting you know the police shouldn't be able to march into the home of an unarmed woman and shoot her and kill her for right. no reason. Right. That should not happen in a civilized country. It shouldn't. And then when we have a protest about it, who is shown as the bad guy, the bad people? The protesters, not the people who perpetrated the crime, but the people who protest the crime. Right, because they're causing an inconvenience. Because they're causing an inconvenience. So that's what we're... And I don't know. I don't know. I don't think you're supposed to know as a reader where to fall. Or if you do know where to fall, I don't think that she judges you. Like at the end when they're talking about the Westminster Bridge. I think you could side with Victoire or you could side with Robin. Right. And I, <clears throat> I feel like this book is not... Here is the conclusion to the ethical moral discussion yeah it's here are some perspectives 
on the ethical moral discussion and let that sink in. Let that and steep, have, steep with that. Yeah, yeah. Let that steep in your brain after you're done with the book and you'll have you'll have some more kind of angles to look at a problem yeah. that you may encounter in real life. Right. It's forcing you to confront your um beliefs you take for granted. Right. Um, and I think things... writing it writing it in a way that actually like kind of evenly gives you multiple points on a debate or a discussion is a lot harder. Yeah. Uh, than saying, no, here is the right position to have right. in this discussion. And like kudos for for writing a compelling story while still kind of keeping that balance. Yeah. I mean, some things there are clear sides. Like right. but right. but there are certain discussions where she doesn't force you to choose. You can think Robin's wrong. You can think Victoire's wrong. We're left up. Right. And yeah. And to support that. I think it's that, supposed to feel. The entire magic system is based on holding two opposing ideas yeah. in your head at the I same time. I think it's time. supposed to feel unsettling. It's supposed to leave you feeling unsettled. It's supposed to leave you feeling stirred up. Right. It's like um, the line about reading history is not supposed to make you feel comfortable. Yeah. If you are reading history and you are comfortable, yeah. then you're not really reading history. Yeah. You're well, reading propaganda. Or in here, there's all translation is betrayal. Yes. That was such a cool topic yes. that they kind of that spent a lot of time on. The only way to experience a text is in its original language. And if you have to translate it in order to experience it, you are never authentically experiencing it. So all translation is a betrayal. I thought that was a really fascinating section. This right. is so we talked a little bit about how this reminded me of the imager portfolio. And I think uh, I'll expand on that a little bit. Is both of these authors, Ellie Modisset and RF Kuang, had one stunningly brilliant idea for a magic system. So we have the translation system, which is the two opposing words. And then we have the imager system in the imager portfolio where you can literally anything you can envision, you can make real. Right. And the more vividly you can imagine it, the better you make it. Yeah, the better you are at making it. And then we explore the moral implications of the application of that magic. And we really like pin down the mechanistic limitations Right. Of the magic system. It reminds me of some of the more modern day things where we talk about superheroes and what is the, what are the moral constraints on a superhero? What happens if you have a character like Superman who is not a good dude? Like Homelander? Like Homelander. That's exactly what we're talking about in The Boys is what happened? You know, there, we get dazzled by powers, by superpowers. And I see that in a lot of the books that I read with Kate and Hannah is it's all about these hyper powerful, super powerful magic users who do these really cool things and they're always highly moral or clearly bad. Okay. I mean, that's fine. There's certainly a place for that, but I love when we delve deeply into the moral applications of extreme amounts of power held in a very small number of people. Right, which is, that's kind of what fantasy does for you. Yeah. Is it, by creating any kind of magic system, you are concentrating a huge amount of responsibility and influence yeah. in the world into one person. And it amplifies anything that's happening to that character. They they have this amplified temptation to just exert their will upon the world. Right. And that's usually who the villain is. Yeah. They get an extreme amount of power and influence over reality, and they can't maintain the moral balance of what's the right amount of power to use. And 
what all goes into my decision-making process. Do I, am I the sole arbiter or do I seek counsel with my, you know, friends, advisors, whatever. And it, as a, a trope, it's a, it's a whole technique for, uh, playing with in a sandbox, playing with the themes of what happens like rather yeah. than having a whole committee of people that have a, a bunch of power, you can for plot you can consolidate it into one person, yeah. and make a more compelling story. Right, or it's like magical power as a metaphor for political power, the ability to influence a large number of lives with your own personal decisions. Yes, we talk about that a lot in this book, and one of the things that we tackle a lot is. I'm trying to think about how to phrase this. So because all of our characters have different ethnic backgrounds, we talk about what that means for their personal experience moving through the world that they're in. Because on the surface, it is idyllic. Women can go to this college. People from countries that would otherwise be excluded from British um, schools get to go to this college. People of any color. People, basically. anybody can come because they need as many different languages as possible because that puts more, more power in their, more cards right. in and their it, deck. It seems to be extremely, what's the M word that, um, meritocratic. Merit, yeah. Where the only consideration is what you are able to do. Yes. Not anything about on the surface. who or what you are on yeah. the surface. On the surface, yeah. And Robin even says at one point, um, you know what? What do I have to complain about? I've never gone hungry. I've never had to sleep. I've always had a bed. I've always been warm and comfortable, and fed. And he ends up having a confrontation with his dad, not dad, about it, where he says, you know, you're always so ungrateful. You have so many things. You've been given so many things. And Robin's like, yeah, but I never asked for this. Right. And in those kinds of situations, what you need to ask is, why are you doing this? Well, he says it was your dream. It wasn't my dream. And you're asking me to be grateful for being forced into doing something that I never wanted to do. Exactly. Because... The whole motivation for Professor Level doing this is exploitation. Yeah. And this was real. I mean, social Darwinism was a big part of what shaped the way these people saw the world, which is the British genetic lineage was actually superior to people from other countries. It wasn't cultural. It was biological. You could take The reason he had to go out and make them half professor level was so they would be British enough to to be able to do what he wanted them to do. To civilize the... He needed to dilute. He needed to dilute their, quote, you know, inferior genes. Yeah. And this is not something that went away in the long distant past. We live in a state where eugenics was alive and real until the 1930s. 70s. 60s, 70s? Yeah, yeah, till the 1970s or later. People people are still alive now who were victims of eugenics programs in North Carolina. That is right. wild. So this, and that is not long ago. Yeah. So this is not, this entire narrative is not far from reality. This is not far from reality. This this was exact. This is actually this is the British Empire with silver. That's exactly what this is. This is not yeah. that far distantly removed, and the British Empire stood until I think World War One and World War Two is really where we see a great dissolving because they just didn't have the resources, and then everybody started to revolt, and um, you get all all of these colonies declaring independence. But again, that would be a hundred years after the time period of this book. Yep. And of course, this isn't an accurate history. If you want history, like British history, where magic is like intrinsically real, that's Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. This is British history with a slight twist, with just a little bit of a 
it, like I said, a paper thin barrier. Right. It's that gives her room an to alternate play. history. It gives her room to play. Yeah. But also to convey, um, convey cultural overtones that were very real. And I think that just plays into how smart of an author she is. And I always appreciate when I trust an author to take me on an emotional journey and give me like everything, highs and lows. Some of the books that I read with Kate, I don't trust that. I don't think we're, if you, if, if it's a low, it's a pretend low. We're yeah. going to come back from it. But I never for once believed that the stakes were not real in this book. Who was your favorite character? Oh. I liked Rami. I really did like Rami. Um, I was kind of expecting Rami and Robin to get together. Especially with their first meeting. Yeah. That, that was my first thought. Was, I was like, oh, okay. All right. I'm in for this. Yeah, but there's no cool. romantic overtones nope. in any of this. Nope. And... Except for Letty. Well, Victoire really liked Rami. No, Letty liked Rami. Letty liked Rami? Yeah. She was in love with him. Remember, she cries on Robin's shoulder about why doesn't he see me? Oh, I thought that was Victoire. Okay. No, Victoire liked Anthony. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that we have the dark other trope in this. And she uses it really well because we have Robin and we have Griffin. Oh, yes. Yes. So the, Griffin, like, the dark brother. Yeah. Griffin yeah. is literally Robin's dark brother. Yes. His dark other. His, the. The alternate version of him. Yeah. The that's push more and pull characters. The push and pull characters. Yeah. That really, they bring each other into the light or into the shadow, one or the other, but they are intrinsically linked. They highlight the differences yeah. between them. And then when Griffin does finally die. Really, Robin becomes an amalgamation of the two characters. Yes. He embraces yeah. his and, shadow. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> he integrates his he shadow. He integrates his shadow. And it really makes him a stronger, more balanced character. Absolutely. And he he explicitly states those things when he takes over the tower. Yeah. He's like, wow, like, I pretended i was griffin when i was like up making the big speech whatever yeah. and it works it worked like i had been suppressing that inside of me which the shadow work like jungian shadow integration whatever it is the shadow is the things that you could have been that you suppressed yeah. instead of exploring and those things don't go away. They continue existing in your psyche, just behind the scenes. And they get bigger over time. And eventually they express themselves uh, against your will. Yeah. Like when you have an outburst or something like that. And so shadow work is like sincerely exploring the possibility that you could be a violent person yeah, or that you could be, I don't know, an athlete or yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. Like you, like uh, some uh, of us maybe like wear different styles of clothing yes. or, um, you know, cut all your hair off or, you know, actually, um, legitimately, sincerely exploring the idea of being something different than what you are. And then reconciling that with who you actually are. Yeah. I will say and the siege section felt a little long. Now that we're did. talking about it. Yeah. Now that we're into the section and where he's integrated his shadow. <laughs> it really, you know, I get it. It's supposed to feel like the slow, um, anticlimactic way that a siege would feel. Yes. Where you are at first, it's exciting. But then it's just boring because it's just everybody's staying in their right their and, zones, and it really does communicate boring. Yeah. Yes. Which, like, initially I wanted to criticize, like, ah, uh, you know, parts of this book like feel 
Draggable. Like a slog. Yeah. But that's because it's accurately conveying what the author wants you to feel about what the character's experiencing. Right. Yeah, like and after Robin kills his dad on the boat and we're stuck on the boat for nine weeks. Right. It and really, just the continuous anxiety. It feels like that. It feels like yeah, it. Yeah, you're like, yes. oh my God, are we ever going to get off this boat? This is so hard. And it's like, well, that's what they're feeling too. Yep. So she she leads you through this with her pacing as much right. with her prose. And it's with a more plot-driven version of this story, you would just kind of gloss over a lot of that so that you can get to the next engaging scene. Yeah, the scene. next nine weeks were really difficult, but we made it through it on to the next thing. Right. Instead and, of... And I would say that the Poppy War is very similar. There were parts of it where it's really like a slog. And while reading it, it's kind of like, oh, do we have to take this long? Do we have to spend this much time in the character's head just getting through this experience? Like, just stewing on this traumatic thing that happened and i wish we could just keep keep it moving keep it exciting and then in retrospect it's like no that that was necessary mm -hmm. because that was literally the character's journey yeah through that experience and so after getting through it it's like okay it was worth it to get through that that experience. So let's see. Uh, interesting plot points or interesting events <laughs> that, where something popped out to me. When um, I kind of knew how this was... Well, I had a really strong idea of how the story was going to end, but I wasn't sure how they were going to execute it when... Professor Playwright yes. took them upstairs and is just kind of like, okay, guys, you know, you're in this year and you're actually going to start doing some of this stuff. And just here's some of the basics and be careful. Never use this word, you know, never translate this. Yeah. Don't because, make the match pair translate. Right. With translate. Which yes. I think is so clever. Right. Uh, on the whole magic system thing. And I thought, oh, this reminds me of Dune <laughs> when, <laughs> when Paul is talking about making the water of life into the water of death. And they're like, no, that would destroy all, all the spice. And he's like, he who has the power to destroy a thing controls actually the controls thing. the thing. Yes. And I thought, oh, here's the hook for this story is... Now we know how to destroy the thing, Isn't which there is a the thing silver. In the imager portfolio that you can never create, I thought there was. There, there's a technique like... where you can unmake a thing. Yeah, and it is extremely dangerous, and the main character ends up being one of the most powerful. Yeah. Um, Imagers Obviously. in the history. Yeah. And he's able to do it. Okay. But I he's one of like three. Yeah. Generally. I think it was the political overtones that kept drawing me back. The fact that we were, we mixed magic and politics mm -hmm. so intrinsically. I think yeah. that's what kept. I was like, oh, this is, this reminds me so strongly. And the, uh, the like, in the middle of the Industrial Revolution. Yeah. And also the... There's a like a uh, reprising. Isn't there an uprising? Uh, it's not so much an uprising. It's that the character in the... Oh, spoiler, if you ever read the Imager series. Um, <laughs> at the end, he basically becomes so influential in the society and wields so much personal power that he decides to use it to create unions. Okay. Well, all right. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he institutes a bunch of like labor rights and things. Uh, yeah. I think it was the way we walked so tightly through how the magic worked. 
She wasn't just like, well, there's silver bars. You put two words on them. Really, the ex- the a whole idea of translation and language and the importance of like not just the words, but the cultural implications of language and how to preserve a language, you can't just write it down in a book. You right. can't just have a dictionary. That's not enough. You have to have a complete cultural understanding of the language in order to fully translate. And the idea that colonization is an inherently destructive process. Right. The, here's another good line. There is no such thing as humane colonization. Yeah. Well, fucking yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> in the history of the world, I think that that has been proved over and over and over again. And colonization does not just destroy the immediately colonized area. It has a ripple effect for everything around it. Like when you get the Spanish landing in South America and making contact there, they literally spread disease that was so contagious and so virulent It wiped out over 90% of the population of South and North America. So when Columbus arrives and you have scattered villages of natives, that's a post-apocalyptic society. Prior to that, we have cultures that have cities as large as many cities in Europe that had thriving trade routes that was an entire nation in its own right, but had literally just been... It was like the Black Plague, but in North and South America. And we don't ever talk about how that we weren't like, hey, we came and civilized the natives. They were literally like, oh, fucking thank you. We all just died. (laughs) Like, what just happened? All of the, like, older adults by the time Columbus had arrived had lived through a a reverse decimation decimation yeah. yeah in their towns literally 9 out of every 10 people were dead yeah i mean it's an older book now but guns germs and steel is still a really good book to read about the effects of militarization um disease and technology on the history of the world. And one of the, I mean. Well, here's, a, here's another. Okay, really go good for line. it. Robbery, butchery, and theft. They call these things empire. And where they create a desert, they call it peace. Well, I think that's probably a good place to end it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we can sum it up any better than that. This is a bleak. This is bleak. It was pretty bleak. It was pretty bleak. I think we kind of get a message of hope at the end in that you can make personal choices that may or may not create a space for other people to be able to rise above where you were. Right. And to kind of like get back down in the weeds again, the the whole motivation for taking over the tower is to convince the British government to not go to war in China. Yeah. Right. Which is a, a thing that actually happened. Yeah. And it's a big thing that actually happened and it actually happens in the poppy war too. Oh, there's a whole, it's like a alternate history in China from the Chinese perspective where the British show up, but they have like airships and stuff. There's, like different magic systems. It's not the same universe. But here, they're trying to stop it. And they're playing chicken with Parliament. Yeah. To, like, we have two demands. One, don't go to war with China. And two, don't kill us when this ends. Yeah, amnesty. And at the end... They realize Parliament doesn't care. Yeah. This is only like improving things for them in the long term. Right. And so they, okay, well, the only way that we can 
make a difference in how the British government is going to behave is the necessity of violence. The necessity of violence and destruction. Right. And so they literally destroy the hub of the entire industrial development of the British Empire, which is the Babel Tower. It'd be like turning off the electricity. It'd be like blowing up all the power plants. Yeah. And then, okay, well, we have to rebuild them. Well, we're not going to be going to war with anybody while we're rebuilding all our power plants. Right. And so I think that that's the, I think that's a lot of what is going through Robin's head at the end is like, there's the two angles on this where one, I'm actually going to achieve the change that I was pursuing by, if not completely avoiding Britain going to war with China, I'm going to delay them by years. Yeah, so that everyone else has the time to prepare. But also, he's lost a lot of the hope that after this stalemate, things could actually get better. Yeah. And so this is, he's avoiding what he perceives to be a lifetime of suffering by sacrificing himself for the more likely, like, slightly successful outcome. Yeah. He's and, giving everyone space. Yes. Yeah, this doesn't win the war, but it provides that necessary gap, that moment of pause in which everyone can gather, can take a breath, and can gather their resources. Right, and prepare to fight against the British when they do show up. Right, because, you know, the British Navy was the most powerful Navy in the world, and that's true in this book as well. And in this book, it's because of the silver bars and the silver that they use to power their Navy. And so if they can take the power away, then they don't have any better ships than anybody else. In fact, they're less functional because they've become so dependent on the silver and now the silver's not working. Right, exactly. So they don't even have just regular steam engines that can work without the silver. Right, yeah. yeah. And they don't have any of the resources and the, and the research that was housed in the tower. So they have, they're behind by hundreds of years now. Right, whereas if they had actively shared and dispersed that information freely to the other universities in Great Britain. Yeah. It wouldn't have been a big deal. No. Because oh there's not one tower. There's like five. Right. At each big university. Well. We wouldn't be fighting this fight if but that would have by spreading out the ability you you don't centralize so much financial power into one entity which is part of the problem yeah because you get you know one or two people in charge of that financial entity and they get to push that influence wherever they want it huh where have we seen that before hmm. Hmm. oh i don't know the the united oligarchy of the united states <laughs> <laughs> where Huge amounts of power and wealth are held by a very small number of men. Right. And so the almost all the negative consequences end up being the results, the inevitable consequences of the decisions of the constructors of the Tower of Babel. Yeah. And so in the end, Tower of Babel falls. Just like in the Bible, because they thought they could touch God. Hubris. Hubris. Hubris brings it down. And I think that's a good place to end. <laughs> <laughs> and I know we didn't cover a lot of the racial topics that are brought up in this book. And I encourage you, I know you've already read them. Definitely think about them. That's something that I think it could spark a lot of conversation. Oh, well, I, I did have one thing I wanted to say about. Okay. Okay. So probably like seven eighths of the book, the angle is. There are no good white people in Britain. <laughs> well, yeah. And then 
like even the displaced workers, you know, on the streets are still, um, you know, prejudiced against uh, yeah. Robin and his, his cohort. Yeah. But then at the end, when when he takes over the tower and he's like, guys, we're being exploited too. They're kind of like, oh, yeah, okay, you know, us in I the gilded you. tower, yeah, um, you know, we had you know bullshitted ourselves about being exploited because we had such cushy lives, yeah. And then they get a lot of, um, it's the it's the the rest of the exploited people in England that come to their aid. Yes. And even the single person that he'd had a negative experience with on the street became like his biggest ally yeah. amongst the people of England. Right. And so by the end of it, we've shifted the perception of like from Robin's point of view, we've shifted the perception of there are no good white people in Britain to instead of this being a always like a racial lens that we're looking at it through. Now it's a class lens. Yeah. It's, oh, all of the other exploited people are our brothers and sisters. Yeah. And it's the you know wealthy elites that are actively exploiting us. Those are our enemies. Right. And like both sides kind of shift their perspectives Almost on that. Almost as if. Hitting all of the people at the bottom against each other is a has strategy. Always been a distraction. Hmm. hmm. And so that that was the only race related thing yeah. that I wanted to like consolidate from. This I just book. wanted to point out that we were intentionally choosing to not discuss some of the racial overtones in this book. This is something that you need to read and experience for yourself. And if you feel need need to explore that personally, I highly recommend it. It definitely raises a lot of really good questions. It gives you a lot of unique perspectives, especially if you're, you know, a lot of white people tend to be very siloed, especially like where we live in the rural South. Um, we are, whether we choose to or not, we all tend to move in siloed spaces and that's not a good thing because it's important to trying to figure out how to say this. It's important to have a a wide variety of experiences and perspectives. Um, it, you don't want an echo chamber. Nobody wants to live in an echo chamber that doesn't benefit anyone. That does not create growth. And we are choosing not to talk about it because that is not the realm in which I feel like our voices are a voice. I think we should amplify other voices. I don't think we need to insert ourselves in that conversation. Right. And I right. think read that, this book. It raises I think a lot that of good Kwong point. is having a her voice is extremely eloquent, and I just want you to read her voice in this and take her perspective on this because she has put a lot of thought into it. She has a perspective I can't have, and I want you to go and read hers. Um, so we're just going to address the cultural overtones. Yeah. And I think that's a good way to go about it. Yeah. Um, and now is where that, we're going to leave it. Another ending? Yeah, another ending. Um, yeah, I feel like she had a bunch of endings. We can have a bunch of endings, yeah. too. It's fine. So uh, until next time, friends. Wait. Oh. Next month's read is, is going to be The Double Dead, The Complete Double Dead. The Complete Double Wendig. Dead. Yeah, which is actually two books, but when you put them together, they're no longer they're in one, this book. When you take two <laughs> yeah, things and, and put, put them together, <laughs> they become one thing. They do, but they're no longer than this book is what I'm saying. <laughs> if you read this book in a month, you can read The Complete Double Dead yeah. in a book. And this is, a, this is a Rachel suggestion. This one is a Rachel suggestion. So now you will begin to see the shape of the way that each of us moves through the literary world. <laughs> <laughs> Matt has this really highbrow, extremely literary fantasy novel alternative <laughs> history in my mind. my next suggestion for september is called 
geometry for ocelots. Yes. And I, my, I think there's a theme here. My book is about a snarky vampire guy who ends up waking up after the zombie apocalypse has happened <laughs> and he's got to figure out what the fuck to do because he's got no one to eat. And so that's where we're going to go with that one. <laughs> so if you were a little intimidated by this book, don't worry. You won't be intimidated by Chuck Wendig. It'll only be every other month. <laughs> 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 All right. So until next time, friends. Until next time. Bye. Bye.